This is the Love Intently podcast, and I'm Sophie Kwok, your host and the founder of Love Intently, where our mission is to empower thriving relationships. Real quick before we dive into this week's episode, have you taken our love personality quiz yet? It's a fun way to learn how you and your partner love similarly or differently, and you can find it at loveintently.com. It's empowered a lot of couples to start these conversations about what is meaningful to them and what matters most to them. But also, if you're single, I highly recommend getting to know the stuff about yourself now so that when you are in a relationship, you're able to communicate what works for you and what doesn't and learn that about your partner. This is the Love Intently podcast, and I'm your host, Sophie Kwok, the founder of Love Intently, where our mission is to empower thriving relationships. This week, we have Parham and Jen. Parham is a seasoned entrepreneur and the author of Perfect Pain, where he shares his journey of pursuing the American dream. After fleeing Iran as a child, he had built the perfect life for himself, a multi-million dollar business, his dream home, a loving wife, and three beautiful children, all while nursing his secret, a $2,000 a week cocaine addiction. Eventually, his wife discovers his addiction and Parham commits to seeking help. What follows is a beautiful, hopeful memoir of a man searching to find his most authentic self. This is the story of becoming reacquainted with yourself when your childhood is smeared by trauma, of being willing to open the darkest doors and look inside, of the joy that comes when you recognize that nothing was enough, but you are enough. And I read this book before I interviewed him and his wife, and it was one that I could not stop reading. He's extremely frank and vulnerable and honest in sharing his journey as refugee to achieving what most would call the American dream, but also the truth behind achievement and success and how when we don't face our own trauma, that it doesn't just escape us. It's something that follows us. And I just deeply appreciate him opening himself up to share his journey to empower others. Parham and Jen met during grad school and were friends for quite a bit of time before they ever dated. And let's just say that he knew way before she did that he was going to marry her and walked around and told others that as well. Jen played a critical role in the growth of their company, which enabled them to be acquired eventually. And on this episode, Parham discusses his journey of overcoming his cocaine addiction, depression, and recovery, all while being a successful entrepreneur and father. Jen shares her side of the story of keeping a multi-million dollar business afloat while raising their beautiful children and supporting Parham through his recovery journey. Addiction and depression is something that is far more common than we can think and tears families apart but it's also something that I truly believe can be overcome. And I hope this episode empowers anyone that is listening to know this truth that overcoming addiction is possible. We had a mutual friend that, that she was friends with. She was about six years younger than me working as a, uh, a nurse in town at the local hospital. I was just finishing up my MBA and I already had already been in the midst of, you know, starting my company and my business. And so I went through a period that I was just actively gone, you know, from hanging out with my friends and everything. Cause I was just really busy between my business and my MBA. And as soon as I finished my MBA, I kind of 
uh, awakened and started, you know, socializing and being with all my old friends and, and whatnot. And when I came back to that world, Jen was friends with some of my mutual friends. We became friends. Truth be told, I know she, she'll blush, but, but right when I saw her, I kind of thought I'm going to marry her the first time I met her. And she was just a friend of a friend. And in fact, a couple of my friends had a crush on her. But that day, I, I really, I remember where it was. It was in my friend's apartment. He was giving her a birthday present, which was a mug. I remember that. And I just remember she had a really cute smile. And I thought, I think she's going to be my wife. And then sort of uh, not much later after that, six, seven months later, we, we, we became really good friends and then dated. And once we dated, it was a very quick transition into engagement and marriage. Yes. I was going to say, began awkward period when he started telling our friends before we were dating that he was going to marry me. And everybody was like, are you dating? And I'm like, no, we're not dating at all. And so, yeah, I think it was, it was, we were friends for quite a while before we started dating. So I think just, we were drawn to each other and loved hanging out together before we ever even dated. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is what's helped us now. I mean, we were friends and we're had friends we just yeah. liked hanging out together. We would, we both <clears throat> bought furniture for our houses separately, but went together to Chicago and did a lot of things before we were dating. Was there a moment when you realized that, that was someone that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with as far as Jen? I know it was really early on for you. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was because we were friends for a long time and I actually, you know, we would both date other people and I really, Parma's, you know, like you said, six years older than me. So I think in my mind, I wasn't really planning on dating Parm. So then I think something just happened that, that you realize that the friendship that you have is actually a relationship. Like this is the relationship, right? We were just missing the physical part of it, but we basically were doing all the other things. And I think just finally you were like, yeah, why aren't we dating each other? We love spending time together. So I don't think there was like a lightning bolt moment other than that. We just realized we're doing everything else other than dating at this point. So yeah. Parham, you just recently released a book called The Perfect Pain. Can you share a little bit about that and, and why you wrote it? Yeah, I mean, the, a lot of reasons why I wrote it, but but essentially, you know, in a nutshell, the book is sort of chronicles my my battle with depression, my journey from, you know, becoming here as an immigrant, lots of childhood, you know, trauma, difficulties, challenges, however you want to interpret those. And Ultimately, though, I, I discovered that I had really bad depression and it manifested into a decade long battle with drugs and alcohol and, you know, at a very severe, destructive level. And the only out for me was I started getting psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, did a lot of psychoanalysis, and I still do to this day. So I'm about 15 years I've been doing this, over 1,200 sessions, as a matter of fact. And so, over time, I learned a lot about my depression, why I was the way I was, and ultimately with the goal of keeping my family intact and, and being there for my kids when they, when they grow up and ultimately beating this um, very bad habit that I had. But for me, it was more finding out why I had it. You know, it wasn't like going to, I wasn't going to go to a 30-day outpatient or Hazleton or, you know, one of those things because it just wasn't part of my DNA to think like that. I had to solve things. I was a deeper thinker. I was a conceptual person. I had to understand why. And so I met the perfect combination of those things and pressure from my family because I was about to blow up my family. Um, So those two combined together led me to a better path to the psychoanalysis. And I just had the need to write the book about it 
of how and why I got there and chronicling this, you know, the book is a memoir, so there's stories in it. But at the end of the day, it has a strong message. And the message is that everything that happened to me, the, the drug addiction, the, you know, I was abused when I was a kid coming from Iran, you know, all these things were perfect at the end of the day, because it's just who I am. And, and I wanted to tell people that it's more important to find your authentic self and that you are not perfect and you won't be perfect and you won't live a perfect life. But what's most important is to live your real life and your most authentic life. And, and that's what essentially the book is about. Yeah, it's so powerful. I've been able to read a big chunk of it and it's moved me and I'm so excited to finish it. So thank you for writing that. Yeah, absolutely. Jen, I have a question for you. At what point of your relationship did you realize that he had an addiction and and what was that discovery process for you? I think I discovered it, I mean, maybe just right before we got married or right after we got married. I can't remember. I think it was right after maybe. We were still in our first house. And I don't think I realized it was a crazy addiction problem at the time. I just discovered that he was using cocaine, period, which I was unaware of before while we were dating. So I think the addiction piece of how much he was using, it didn't come out until a little bit later. We had the perfect storm of like, I was working as a nurse, so I'd work 12 hour shifts and be gone for, you know, 15 hours. I was working the night shift. I would be up all night. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd be working and he'd be up all night and I wouldn't know it, you know, and come home and then he'd be at work already. And so, so I didn't realize how much he was doing it until a bit later. I think I was shocked anyway that he was doing it. And then, so we had that issue going. And then I think it just kept getting a little bit worse over time, slowly. And then when we had our kids was really when all the shit hit the fan, preferably, but just because now I was counting on him more. And so it was more apparent when he was unavailable. What were some of the most helpful things during the process? Like, Jen, for you as a spouse, and then also Parham for you as the person that was like recovering from addiction. I mean, I, it, it, it's hard to say a couple of things. There was there were things that definitely, had they not happened, it could have shifted and had things go a different way. The things that come to my mind was one of them, honestly, was the fact that she was very loyal and um, she was very committed. So that 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 served to be a good thing and a bad thing. The, the good thing about it was that I truly did feel unconditional love and that, that she was with me. And, and when she said, I marry and I do, it was, it was a real commitment through good or bad, you know, through good times and bad times in this case, bad times. So that was, that was a positive for me, but also served as a negative because I kind of made me have an out, you know, I kind of made me, sorry, not an out, but it kind of made me have um, not as much pressure to fix my problems because I thought, Oh, well, she's not going to leave me and, or, you know, and, and that kind of thing. That, that was one part of it, but the, really the big part, there was a couple other ones were where she, she got strong and, you know, she kicked me out of the house for a couple of weeks. And, you know, that was a, that was a real low point in my life because I had a kid and living in a hotel and I didn't like that feeling. Um, had she not done those, done that, I don't know how, how much motivated or how quickly I would have been really on the path of helping myself, but that was a bold and important move from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think too, the good and bad was that we focused on the addiction part of it, right? So Parm's a good person and, you know, we held that close to us and I did to myself that the guy I married is still in there somewhere. And so we were trying to focus on the addiction part of it. And that's what 
made us string it up. It, it also hurt us a bit because we strung it along a bit longer than maybe, you know, when I finally did, you know, kick him out of the house and had some big moments that he had to look at himself closer, you know, and not allowing the addiction to continue at home. So I think it's mixed, right? I don't know. I, I do say that I felt I'm super grateful that Parm went to therapy because we couldn't be, we might not be here today, right? Had he not worked hard on getting better from his depression and stopping the addiction. So I, I do consider us lucky. I don't think it works for everyone that way. And it was a long road. We've been married for 17 years and struggled with the addiction issues for 10 of those. Yeah. So mm. it's not been an easy path. And I actually ended up going to see a therapist too, because I kind of was lost in knowing how to navigate this. Like he's a great person. And on a day that he didn't use drugs, you know, we'd have weeks that go two or three weeks of having really amazing weeks. We'd have fun with our friends, you know, great fun person to be around. And then it would be terrible for days. So, so I was also looking for some advice on how to navigate that. And then especially once we had a baby, then obviously I had to think more about our daughter than about him. What was it that ultimately empowered you to bring him back or invite him back into the house? Cause I know you guys separated for a little bit. It's like divine intervention because I, I actually was pregnant with our second baby when I kicked him out and it was because I just couldn't take, you know, I mean, I couldn't do it anymore. And, um, it was just getting too unpredictable to have kids around. And so we had had some issues with our first pregnancy that we ended up having the baby early, eight weeks early. And I was in the hospital for a bit. So we kind of expected the same issues with the second pregnancy. And I went on bed rest at 20 weeks and so I actually had to call him to come back home because, you know, I needed someone to be watching our one-year-old and help. And so I always think it was like, I don't know if he would have said he was sorry and came back. I don't know what would have happened had that not happened. Yeah. So I called him and I was like, this is your get out of jail free day. And you are, you know, I need you to come back home. And so lucky enough for me, he ended up coming home and stepping up and it pushed him to work much quicker on changing his life. I'd say. At least for that period of time in the, in the short yeah. run, I, yeah. that was more willpower than it was really being fixed from, from the ground up. So those were one of those moments where it was just, you just had to do what you had to do because our family was in a little bit distressed with her being on bed rest. It wasn't that I was healthy. It just, I made myself just stop. You know, it was just mm -hmm. one, of, one of those, one of those moments, but I, I wasn't healthy. I mean, I not think then. one of the I was healthier, but not really. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. one of the hardest parts of dealing with addiction and depression or whatever your underlying reason for addiction is, is that when you start working on it, it actually, I think gets, gets worse, worse before it gets better. And so I, you know, we have some friends struggling with similar issues and it's hard because it gets worse. Once you start working on the problem, it gets a bit worse for a while or you're doing good and you kind of go up a little bit and then you take 10 steps back and you take 15 steps forward. And, you know, and I felt like that's just kind of how the process goes. 
And so, Sophie, what she's referring to is that the, the reason it gets worse, especially this type of therapy, is because you're un- uncovering a lot of pain. You're, you're going through psychoanalysis and you're delving back into the past and, and reliving and working through some of your conflicts and some of your hurts and some of that pain. And so it becomes more painful for a while. And so you need to numb that pain with that. And so then you can go on binges. And so, in fact, I would I got way worse before I got better. I went through a period where my binges and my disappearances and were, were really, really bad. But I, and then I also on top of it made excuses because I was like, well, look how much, you know, how much I'm uncovering and how painful this stuff is. So I deserve to go on a three day binge, you know? And so it was a really bad peak, I would say. And that was why in the midst of, you know, the kids and having two kids at that point. And, but I think I got to this really, really bad point towards the end. And then it started, then it started going in the right direction. How did you get past those really intense lows? Like, what would you tell yourself now looking back? I just always knew I was better than this. I just, I just always knew that there's, there's a better meaning to my life than to end up dying in a hotel from an overdose. I just always knew that. And while I was even doing the binges and while I was disappearing and and disconnecting with the world, I knew that there's going to be less chance of this, me doing this six months from now and less chance one year from now, but I would still go through the process. I would still do it, but I just had a feeling and I just knew that this wasn't me, that that it just, just wasn't me. What about for you, Jen? Like, did you expect that? Did you know that? Or like, what was, I can't even imagine, like, you're like, you're seeking help now and then it's getting a little worse. Like what made you cling on? Well, I mean, I think, that's probably it. I don't know that I was clinging on. I think it was, I mean, I felt like we at home was very tumultuous at best. So we, we probably were fighting our fair amount, but had enough good days to, to waver it. And I also think I just had a good network of friends, some really well-grounded friends that I could talk to and that were, you know, that, that new Parm. And I felt like they were helping me kind of work through when was enough and all the situations that I was in. And so I don't know. I felt and like the kids helped having kids and you're focusing them. And at the end of the day, you still had to raise the kids at the end of the day, you still had to attend to their needs. And I think that's distraction enough. I'm not speaking for you, but I think that probably helped having that distraction as well. Well, no doubt in that. I think it's, I mean, I think everyone who is facing getting divorced or leaving their spouse thinks about like, there's never a good time to do that. Right. There's always something that you're, you know, what's, what's the time that you're going to say that I'm going to parent by myself now. And so I felt like you're just constantly evaluating at what time I thought that the goodness in Parm was gone enough that I couldn't pull them back into family life anymore. Yeah. Basically, I mean, I kept hoping that that the good side of Parm and and the Parm that I married was going to win out on his internal battle there. If there is a good thing to my addiction, it wasn't the type of alcohol and drug addiction where, you know, you're belligerent and you're mean and you're abusive. And I just would disappear. I all mine was to my lonesome. I would just go in a hotel for three days or downstairs in the basement for two days. I would just disappear. So mine was just being absent. And um, I don't believe I was abusive or like, you know, I wasn't like a raging, you know, there's some people with a temper or there was none of that. It was just, I was not around. Right. Like you, it was still safe 
for the people in your life. Yeah, I'm just hurting myself. I would just lock myself up somewhere. When did you discover your depression? Because one of the things in the book that I think is so important to be talked about is nobody knew about your depression at all. Um, And that like from the surface, like people couldn't really tell. But when did you discover that you had a depression and like what enabled you to finally first share that with people in your life? Yeah, I mean, like so many people, they have it wrong. They think depression is somebody moping around. I mean, that is one of the symptoms, can be one of the symptoms. Different people have it different ways, but... But people believe that depression is somebody moping around, unmotivated, laying around, eating too much, you know, those kinds of things. But depression is this internal issue that's going on. And mine came out in narcissistic ways, grandiosity, you know, uh, being really successful actually was a defense against my depression and those kinds of things. So being really popular was a huge defense against my depression. So on the outside, you just wouldn't know it. You would think I'm the happiest guy there is. I was popular, you know, and that's what it was really important for me to share in that book is that be, be underneath all that, I was a mess. But on the outwardly, it, it, it appeared the right way. But honest to your, to your question, I learned that in therapy. I learned that my acting out as a defense to my depression was the ways that I just mentioned. And depression did not have to mean that I was sad or unhappy because I did not appear to be. I became actually appearance-wise more depressed when I knew I had this crazy problem because I just would beat myself up so much. I'd go on a three-day binge and I'd be so upset with myself and depressed that I did this. And then, but I would, you know, and then I would, you know, this would reoccur, but I learned it in therapy. That's when I really, really understood depression was in therapy, which is why I love talking about it because I don't think people quite get it. I think most people in the United States have some depression in them. That doesn't have to mean that you're a raging um, alcoholic, but, but we do all have some issues that we don't really confront. Jen, is depression something you've had to personally deal with at all through this process? I don't think I have had to deal with it separately at all. My dad struggles with depression. So I felt like I, I grew up with, you know, it's, it's like I chose him and he chose me, right? We are a good marrying of, he picked the right person that grew up in the right environment that my dad was an alcoholic. And so I was used to my dad checking out a bit too. So I think some people wondered how we got so far into it. And it's because I, you know, half, I I was used to a dad that would go downstairs and be by himself. So I dealt with that with my dad a bit, but, but not on a personal note. Do you have any advice for spouses or people that have spouses that are struggling with depression specifically and like the ways to best support them, what you found helpful in your instance? So, I mean, I, I felt like just dealing with the depression directly I don't have a good answer to that, I guess, other than being being supportive, obviously. And um, I mean, we were dealing more with the depression or I felt like I was. Parm dealt with the depression a bit by himself and his through therapy. But I think it's just riding out waves of, we even say this too, we've had bad years and we've had good years. You have really bad months that you're, we kind of laugh about you know, that 2016 is over and we're glad we're on a a different year because, you know, marriage is tough anyway, without worrying about someone having depression or addiction issues and raising kids is hard. And I think you just got to keep in mind that you loved one another before. And I always tease Parm, we've been annoying each other for 17 years and we're going to keep annoying each other for, you know, I mean, it's just like, I think when people jump to these big, you know, you get in a fight and 
And some people are so quick to turn away instead of just, you know, we're two individuals and we're going to have rough times together. And the thing is, I think, and even now this morning when we were saying that we were friends first, I think that's helped us. We enjoy each other's company anyway. And we, we were friends first. And I think that's helped us to stay together longer and, and just know that each, you know, appreciate each other's goodness. Yeah. And I think Sophie, your question was, you know, what advice would you give people? And I, and I, that's a really difficult one because I think every, every situation is perhaps unique in its own way. And so I don't know that I can honestly think of one blanket advice that, that would benefit somebody. But, um, I, I think the main thing is, is the trajectory of, of help and, and improvement. I think that has to, sh- that has to show up somewhere. It has to show up somewhere. Someone has to be doing work. You can't always get along perfectly like she was saying, and you can't be too quick to just quit either. But I honestly, I'm reverse the situation. I think there becomes a time that it's impossible. And I think for me it would be when someone just absolutely shows no sign of wanting to make concessions and, and improve um, whether it's just a, a couple just having issues and not being able to talk about it or whether someone's like in my case, a, a drug addict and, and things like that. But, you know, there's couples that just can't get along, but they don't really work at it, you know, and they just keep kicking the bucket. You know, they just keep giving it will be better but next week or next month. And it doesn't. And the reality is it'll get worse because everybody grows right in 17 years she's a different person than she was when i married her i'm a different person than you know than when she married me and, and we all grow and the, the real important thing that i always look at couples and, and think about is that you got to kind of not necessarily grow together because you're a human being you don't know how you're going to go but at least you're going to be aware of how they're growing and respected and get to continue to know them because they change but the change is good but you got to stay up with you got to be current with the new program that they have. It's just like a software program. We're using a new Mac, you know, it's got a new software. It's a different software system than it had 10 years ago, right? And and people are updating their software all the time. And it's important to know, you don't want to wake up one day and be like, whoa, that's version 10.0. And I still thought you were version 1.0. And then that's when things get very difficult to fix. Then you can't fix things. The gap gets too big. Were there things that you guys did outside of therapy to kind of update your marriage throughout the years? I mean, yes. I yeah. think when we st- we started um, getting away on trips together more, and I think that's like one of the best things you can do is... We is, do a lot of dinners, yeah. just the two of us. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of lunches, just the two of us. And of course, like she said, a lot of uh, trips that we do, just the two of us. And we make sure that we schedule those in, especially with the lives of three young girls that we're raising. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the longer you don't hang out together, the harder it is to get back in the swing of things. And it's amazing how, you know, just spending a weekend together is a huge reset on us. You know, you got to just fill up your love bucket a little bit or, you know, just re get to know each other again. It's easy to get lost in daily life with kids and everything else. For, For me, I think the difficulties that we had make me want to never have to go through that as, as, as a couple. And I feel like we are way better now than we've ever been. And, and part of it is because we try at it, like, you know, plan it. And just like the same way I got to go work out 
three times this week and I, I make a commit to it and I, and I book myself for 6 a.m. workout because I'm busy with work. So I got to go at six. You kind of got to do the same thing every single week and, and make plans to, okay, when are we going to have lunch? When are we going? Like I texted her last night, I was in Chicago and said, when are we going to go to Chicago for a couple of days? Just the, just the two of us, you know, and, and you, but you have to work at that. And like she was saying, if it goes too long, it becomes really difficult to, to bring that back. It becomes really difficult because people are changing and moving fast. And, and that's a scary, you know, that's a scary thing to, to ponder all of a sudden waking up 10 years from now and be like, who are you? And which is why a lot of people get divorced after their kids, after they become empty nesters. Well, I was going to say too, the people getting divorced after empty nesters, the thing is, I felt like you got to find something fun to do with your spouse, right? You get busy doing all the other stuff and you've got to find activities you know, we like to golf together, you know, play and like eat, eat play Travel. tennis. So I felt like you got to find something fun to do or else really it's, I mean, get a Yeah, luckily we both love to go out to eat. We both love to travel. Those are, no, I mean, those are, those are, we're lucky. I mean, we, we could, you know, one could be a foodie and one not be a foodie. And, you know, we both like wine and we both like food and we like to plan events just based around eating. Always up for the food adventures. Yeah, yeah. What's a, a favorite trip that you guys have been on together? Oh, hands down. As we we did a Mediterranean cruise for our 15th anniversary and went to for a week. Yeah. Went to all over Europe and it was, it was the greatest. Mm-hmm. Is there one that you guys are itching to go on next? Another one just like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another one like just like that. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait, but my I want to go for like two, three weeks. And unfortunately, that's not in the cards with their children. But the one I'm really itching for is when, when the kids are, you know, in college and we get to go like for like a month or like three weeks or for, you know, an extended, extended adventure. And that's the one I'm itching for. You guys have also been on quite the entrepreneurial journey <laughs> over the last 17 years. Uh, can you share a little bit about that and and just what that process was like amidst being married, having kids, and recovering from addiction? I mean, I, I will just say that since we were also tied up in the family business together, I just think it made our situation even more, I don't know if I want to say complicated, but it just wove another layer into all of the the fact that I was also, you know, helping run the business a bit and worried about him and you're just trying to hold it all together. And I don't know, just, I thought created more complexity given everything we were doing, but maybe it's easier than having completely separate, you know, because I could keep tabs on what he was doing at work and, and, you know, if I needed to step in or what was happening. So. Yeah. I mean, definitely a lot of eggs in one basket if, because, you know, she handled a lot of the behind the scenes of the business and, and I was in, in the forefront of it. And and when when I was down, the business was down. And so a lot of things were intertwined and married, like she was saying. So that made it tough. That made it tough because um, if I was just on a binge or I'm in, you know, in a bad place, it didn't just hurt me. It kind of hurt the finances. It, it, you know, it, it would shake the security and the foundation probably for her and, you know, with the kids. And But overall, the journey was good because we did make a good team as far as business goes, because I am not good at the things that she's good at and she's not good at the things that I'm good at. And thank God she was willing to do those things that, that I couldn't do. And it made for a good run in business. We, we had a lot of success, um, but we had a lot of, we had a lot of pain and and not just because of the drug addiction stuff, but just like any entrepreneurial life, I don't think many people could handle the ups and downs that, Jen had to go through, but I think it was just what she married. And, 
it was just that lifestyle that you married and, and, and most business people don't have curves that just go straight up. They have ups and then they have some, when it's down, it's down. And um, we've seen a lot of money lost. We've seen a lot of money made. And I think that's a really great thing to, for, to experience together because she's not afraid of anything anymore. We had some crazy thing happen last year and um, she was the one that was super calm about it, losing money and things like that and, and uh, kept everything in perspective. And that was kind of interesting. It was, it was cool. Yeah. What was the first company you ever started and what inspired it? Well, the first company I ever started was my lawn mowing business and it was my line. Then the second best company, well, it wasn't an official company, but it was my lemonade. I franchised the lemonade stand in my neighborhood and I had all, <laughs> I had all these kids working in different spots of the, uh, the neighborhood, you know, selling lemonade and we would get kickbacks and things like that. But, um, but my real first business was, um, the automotive, the tire and automotive business. I think that was my real first business. And then we have real estate business together, but we recently sold the, um, the main company a couple of years ago. And so we're in a whole new life and in, in, in a whole new journey where we don't really have a, a operating business on a day-to-day business. We, we own and operate some real estate uh, shopping centers and things like that, but we actively have no employees and, and are, um, sort of kind of in a nice pocket. At least I am. I don't have to go to eight to five work or I don't have any kind of a real job. So our job is really hanging out with the kids and doing a lot of stuff with our kids and being at almost every activity that they have. And so that's been our new career and it's been amazing. Jen, when did you switch from being a nurse into joining the family business and how was that switch for you? Um, So I switched officially to completely into the business when I got pregnant Um, I was doing both the business and nursing part-time each because I felt like I tried to just do the business and I felt like I was missing nursing and all my friends in in that world. So I kept doing both. And then when I got pregnant, I finally said, it's kind of what we were waiting for was for me to just focus on the business and be able to stay home with our kids. And so that's when I stopped. What would you tell yourselves or younger versions of yourselves when you guys first started working together? Because I know that's like changes the dynamic of a marriage completely. What are some things you guys would tell the younger versions of yourself? I mean, I think it's not easy. We had to really get to, I mean, it's just being respectful of one another, I would say, and leaving work at work and coming home and trying to be, I don't think we were amazing at leaving work at work, probably. We were just super enmeshed together. The whole thing was, you know. You'd be going to dinner asking questions about work the next day and things like that. So I would have told my younger self to try to separate it maybe a little bit more. Yeah. And I think I would have told my younger self that what I'm doing is not any more important than what she was doing. I always felt like what I was doing was more important because I was driving it and the other parts were just as important. So there was always a conflict because she handled all the money and I just tried to build things. And, and, and grow money, but I didn't really know how to handle it. And she kind of did all that part of it. And I hated it for a long time. I didn't want her, you know, telling me about, you know, Hey, we don't have enough money to pay this bill. Be like, I don't want to hear that, you know? And so you do want to hear that. And you want to be, while you are married, still think of them as like, what would I do if this was somebody working in my office? I would be, I wouldn't speak to her that way. Or I wouldn't get mad at her. I wouldn't, you know, and, and, and I would probably um, like to fix that part of it. 
I'd say no different than running a household together, right? It's like you gotta appreciate. You gotta appreciate. Someone's taking the trash out, and someone has to cook, and someone has to, and and yeah. it's got to get done. And so appreciating, you might not be the one doing it, but you gotta appreciate that someone else is doing that job. And yeah, I just really believe that you know you're a, you're a team that that you really are a team. As cliche and cute as that sounds, but you do have to act as a team, and you're gonna be better off if you respect and act. And, and function as a team because both of your goals are going to probably have a better chance of being realized that way. What was one of the lowest points in this entrepreneurial journey? And how did you guys get through that point? Cause there's a lot of our audience that has those desires to start their own company or is in the early stages of that and are pursuing marriage, a thriving marriage at least. And so what are some things that helped you through those lowest points in your business? The, the low point that immediately comes to my mind was in the early 2000s, I was just growing the business left and right. The money was easy to borrow and I was just growing, growing, growing. And, the, and I was also does the beginning stages of my, you know, narcissistic grandiosity that began because I thought it was great because I was I could do no wrong with business. And I was very successful at an early age. The stock market was doing great. And the reality was I wasn't paying attention to the business at all. I just kept adding stores because it looked great because I could tell people, look, I got eight stores now. Look at me. I'm a big wig. And at the same time, I'm here doing a ton of drugs and really just not even operating my business. And that was a very low because everything crashed and everything crashed. The market crashed in one. My business has crashed and we had to go backwards backwards in time. And in the same way I said her, she was just incredibly supportive and incredibly you know, didn't freak out that we had to go backwards. She would say things like, well, I'll go back and become, you know, do my nursing thing and, you know, let's trim our budget. And, you know, it wasn't like you're screwing up. And it was always a positive vibe that that, that she would give. And But you're going to have bad. Your audience and who's listening, you're going to always have bad. And it's not a matter of if you can avoid bad. It's, it's what you do with that bad. And, of course, we all know you're supposed to take bad things and turn them into positive things. But it's easier said than done. But if you really do accept the bad is what it is, and that's reality, then you can fix it. For me, for a long time, I didn't accept it. And she helped me kind of realize we're not in that good a shape as you think, Parm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it sounds a little cliche, but you know, we tell our kids too, but everything happens for a reason. And almost always after something bad, we would come back even stronger. better and stronger, right? You lean, you know, you'd lean up the business and pull everyone back in and spend less money and get your foundation stronger. And then we would, we would move forward even farther than we were before. And it happened, happened every to, time, every single time that happened. And we've it, had and a few times. It's had a few times. Happened. We've had, yeah. A, yeah, we've had absolutely at least three or four times where it got bad and then by the third or fourth time, we don't even care when things go bad because we're so sure that we'll end up better off somehow, some way than we were in the past. So it doesn't provide or give us any fear anymore. Is there anything in in one of those low times where you made a change that made a significant difference later, like that you wouldn't have discovered otherwise? I mean, for me, it was studying the law of attraction. You get what you think about and as we became better and I became better, really understanding that, that, that whatever bad happened, I invited it. So I truly believe that that we send out vibrations and we, we the way we think 
brings the things to us. And we think we're thinking like positively, but deep down because of our psychological issues, fears and whatever, we're instead of thinking like things are going to be great. For example, someone might think, I hope this bad thing doesn't happen. Well, then the bad thing is going to happen because what you should be thinking about is why something and envisioning something awesome happening. But we instead sometimes think about something bad not happening. That's a still a negative vibration. So then bad comes into your life. And so we just like figured out and I started studying it and she started studying it with me and really realized, holy cow, we control everything that happens in our world just by the way we think. And so when bad things happen, we just go, it's probably a good thing. Even, even I think when we, you know, like, like Herm's book, the perfect pain of it is like the, even when we've had bad health stuff happen, you know, our, our daughter one time got pneumonia and had F surgery and was on a ventilator. We, you know, it was a huge, terrible event. And it, in the end, brought us back closer together. It brought us closer to our daughter. I don't think we, you know, we appreciated every single moment more having gone through that horrendous, you know, time. And I just think that's the same with other things. I mean, sometimes you don't know how good the highs are until you go through the lows and you just gotta, it's hard in the, in the low moment to, to it is, it. And, I, and I think the, 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 the real thing that we learn and that we, I think we get better at and we still are getting better at is that we try not to put an identification on an event, meaning if something were to happen, it's just an event. It's not good or bad because reality is we don't know. We don't have a crystal ball. So I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. In fact, I'm sure it's happened in your life and in, in the lives of all of your listeners that something has happened and it, you thought it was bad and it turns out to be the best thing that ever happened. I get run over, I get hit by a car and it's ruined my day, but it turns out that that person did this and you know where I'm going with that, right? So it turns out to be the best thing. So if you can try to live that way, then then there is no bad. There is no good. It's just, they're just events and things will go the way that your mind wants it to go. Are there any practices you guys do together or separately to keep the positivity in your brains? Because I think it's something we have to, with everything happening in media, like we have to be intentional about it. What do you guys do? I think Parm and I talk more about our emotions and our kids' emotions and th- then a lot of other people that we know. I think just we're we constantly just talking talk about it. We just yeah. talk a lot. Part of mine is... Just my mom raised me that way. It is how I was raised that my mom always focused on the positive part of everything. And so it's just also part of my nature. So I felt like raising our kids to to not be like thinking about the negative and always trying to find the positives and stuff is just a good life lesson. Something that we actively do is we are always saying thanks to everything that happens to us. And we're, we're very, you know, we're not a type of people that sit before dinner and then say, um, what are they, grace or whatever. But we do talk about what we have and don't, and, and appreciate everything. And I think appreciating things, good or bad, and at any given point is, is, is a really great practice. You have three beautiful daughters now, but you mentioned in The Perfect Pain that infertility was something that you guys had to overcome. Can you share a bit about that experience? Because I think it's something we don't talk about enough, but it tears couples apart because they don't have space to share or process that. What's something that you would say to couples currently going through something similar? I think you just try to keep leaning on one another and finding moments to be together. I always used to laugh that people used to tell me, you just need to reduce stress in your life. 
and stop thinking about it, right? <laughs> I knew how many, you know, and, and the people were just ignorant to like, that's like the worst thing you could say to someone um, that's going through infertility. But I think just trying to, I don't know, spend time together a little bit. It was, it was, and we could say we're, we're stronger now having gone through that. I think, again, it's like one of those things that did we appreciate being pregnant more than other people maybe because we spent three years doing it and had miscarriages and, and went through a lot of stuff. But also I thought we had to talk to plenty of times where we were like, what if we can't have kids? And you know, that's, it's a tough road, but also makes you appreciate one another again. We, what if we only have each other? What if this is, you know, what, and I felt like we kind of talked through that where other couples might not have to do that. So in the end, again, it makes you a little bit stronger. It was very difficult, but I didn't really understand it, but I do now. But I never really realized that having a baby wasn't a right. I just thought when you want to have a baby, you just have a baby. And that's just your God-given right. And uh, never really understood that that's not always the case for some people. And so. I am very ultra aware when I see a couple and they don't have kids and it's pretty obviously that they're not planning on having kids to maybe, you know, for a moment to think, you know, maybe they can't have kids and, and, and be a little sensitive around them for, for various reasons. But I just always thought it was just, you get to choose and it's just not that more, it's, it's more difficult than I would have ever thought. And, it, and it's tough. It was tough on her more than it was on me. I can tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. Was there anything that was either really helpful that people did to support you through, through that time or things that were very unhelpful, like telling you to reduce stress. Oh yeah, <laughs> There was a lot of unhelpful things. Um, I think the biggest thing that helped me was, I think you got to find a peer group of people that have either gone through um, infertility or are going through it. Cause I thought there, it is one of those things that no one will ever understand it unless they've done it. So I think that's one of the things, if you can find a support group of people that, you know, I was lucky enough to have a couple friends that had gone through it. So, or were going through it. And so that helped a ton because I really don't think anyone else quite understood it. And then, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan today too, of like using alternative homeopathic kind of like stuff. I did acupuncture. I, you know, in the end, I think some of that kind of stuff, even coming from being a nurse, I think the whole infertility realm is they're just trying to, they're not really figuring out what, how, how they can help your body better. They're just trying to artificially just jump in and, and take over your cycle and do all this stuff. And I really think looking at, you know, doing acupuncture and some other stuff is a good thing for it. But I mean, I would hate to give advice to people that are doing the thing, but I'd say reach out to other people and find a good group. Well, what are you guys currently working on or, or dreaming for or building towards as a couple or individually? And how can we find or support you? Well, what I'm working on and dreaming towards is raising three well-adjusted ladies. And our, our kids are in the tween world right now. And so <laughs> we're experiencing a lot of highs and lows, emotional <clears throat> highs and lows from our kids. But so fun watching them. And they all have different little personalities and watching them go through different fun moments in their lives. And so I feel like they're um, of my top priority right now is just enjoying life with them and they're going to be going off to college soon enough. So, so that's what I've got on my radar and maybe going back to nursing again. I laughed. I just, 
was looking at going, being a school nurse sub. So I'm starting to get my feet wet thinking our kids are gone and enough during the day now that I can try something new. So obviously the same with the kids, we, we were, we're on the, we shared the same goal in, in, uh, getting our kids to be adjusted adults and, and, uh, and happy and content adults and, and, and adults that will contribute to this world. Personally, I'm, you know, on this path with the book. Um, I just have a, an obsession to talk about mental health. And I think there's a crisis and I think a lot of people aren't approaching it the right way or wanting to talk about it or wanting to be aware of it. And, um, every day we, we see signs of it that it's not getting any better. And, and I'm hoping to continue on that path and see where that goes and where that takes me. I have no idea where it's going to go, but, um, every chance I get to talk about it, um, that's what I'm doing. What do you wish more people knew about mental health? I think I wish people, first of all, like I was talking about with depression, understood what depression is. I don't think they really understand what depression is. I don't think they understand. For example, when people read my book, a lot of people say, oh, I'm touched by it. Maybe think about a lot of things. But then my next question is, are you doing anything about it? So I think a lot of people will only do things if they're pinned against the wall, right? So as long as like they're not super falling off the cliff and they're not an alcoholic or something really bad at work or you know, relationships and they're not really wanting to do anything about it. But people watch movies, they read books, they shed tears and they're touched by certain things, but they don't last and they don't last. And we, we don't maintain that and make that a part of our lifestyle. So what I want people to do it is making self-awareness part of your daily thinking. And my, my belief, personal belief, is that if everybody was just a little bit better and a little bit more aware of their issues and a little bit more aware of their, their conflicts, I know this sounds crazy, but I think the world will be a better place. I think people would just be a little bit happier and just a little bit people being happier compounds and, and builds up. And then that would mean our kids are raised a little bit healthier. Then if our kids are raised a little bit healthier, their kids are going to be a little bit healthier and, and this will perpetuate. So I really believe that we have to get to this point and and I'm hoping we don't have continue have these these crises that we have with suicide and you know those are the extremes but but the simple person that's raising a couple of kids that's not perfectly well adjusted well their kids are going to be the same way they're going to grow up in that same way and then those kids don't have a chance so with me and her what we talked about the well adjusted kids that we want is we want them to be psychologically very sound and what that means is they are able to share all their emotions they're able to feel pain. They're able to fear things. They're allowed to be insecure. They're allowed to sh be able to share any of their emotions. And it's all okay because that's that's what makes them strong and, and, and futurely going to be adjusted kids. And that's what I want. It's a lot of, um, it's a lot of wants. <laughs> it's a lot of wants, but, but we'll start with our family and go from there. And hopefully that they'll, they can play a good role model for others and, and, and see where that goes. Absolutely. I resonate with that so much, uh, especially coming from more of an Asian mm -hmm. background. I feel like mental health and sharing feelings, all those things are so stigmatized and not really allowed, but we see so much whiplash from that. And suicide rates within the Asian American population in certain age ranges is higher than anyone else. And I think that's part I didn't of know that. Wow. Yeah. I think especially in, I remember reading this, it was the elder population specifically. It's pretty high for Asians. Yeah. Well, before we move on to the last two questions, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge both of you for 
just your vulnerability and authenticity with all that you do and, and just the positivity and light that you guys share. Like, I know that you show up this way to everyone in your life, like including your friends and family and just people that you meet. And so thank you for just the way that you are talking about the hard things and pressing in to them. You've been through so much and it would be easier to just not talk about it, but you do. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't think of it any other way. I wouldn't really think of it doing it any other way. What is the best relationship advice you have ever received or could give? Well, I'm trying to think if I've really ever gotten good relationship advice. I have probably (laughs) processed things, but truth and respect is the biggest advice. Um, You got to have a level of respect for your spouse. And if you don't have that level of respect, then you won't cherish the most sacred thing, which is honesty, because the only time you can lie I believe to any other person is that you have to sort of not respect them or be dis- because it seems crazy to me to lie to somebody. And so they go hand in hand. And for me, it's respect and honesty because when I'm at my most, most honest and at, you know, respect for her and, you know, I don't take it for granted is when things are the best for us. So I was just going to say, I think you got to figure out how to, I don't want to say grow together, but grow together a bit. You're, um, you know, it's a marathon being married and, uh, you go through so many different phases where, you know, we're, we're in a phase now we can not see each other all day till nine o'clock at night. Cause we're all, we're going in different directions. You know, someone's taking the kids one place for the weekend and some, and so, um, for me, I think it's just constantly, you know, the fact that we focus on it and that we care about one another and about our relationship and just continuing to try to find time together, try to find something we want to do together um, and not just focusing on, you know, it's easy to also just get busy doing stuff separately. And I feel like, you know, we're only halfway through here, not even halfway, you know, and so we're going to also, our kids are going to go off to college and we got to refigure out what we're going to do together again and how we're interacting. And so, so I just think being invested in it and wanting to make it the best it can be. The prize that you get for having a good relationship is just transfers to everything in life. I mean, I was thinking about this to talk with my doctor the other day is that like, I don't have like a lot of people, like I don't have a day where I go and I'm having a conflict in a relationship and affects my work or whatever. It's just kind of a non-event. So we just kind of know we're there together and we're, we're in this journey together. And so I'm not having highs and lows because of the life is already difficult enough. Things are challenging enough. And so I don't have days where I'm questioning our marriage or I'm in a big fight or we're in a big fight and we don't talk to each other for two days or whatever. We'll have little things that happen, but usually we resolve them really quickly. But a lot of people just think that's normal. They just are constantly in a state of turmoil. And it might just be, but, but it affects everything. It affects your relationship with your friends and work and all these things. And so the prize for what you get for having a good, stable relationship is special. It really is the difference between a great life and an okay life to me. And so it's worth it. It's worth the communication. It's worth the effort and it's effort. You gotta, you know, it's definitely effort and uh, we're not perfect, but I am certain that we'll make it. Absolutely. I believe so too. What does love or love intently mean to you? (laughs) This is for her. You gotta ask her that question. 
I mean, I would say back to kind of the same thing that you're doing it with a purpose and you're, you're not just, just going through the motions and you're really choosing moments to, you know, whether it's with farm or with my kids or that you're making special moments and making the other person feel special and appreciating them for who they are. And I guess just giving it your all your best effort. I mean, it's exactly, I just think it's intentional. It's, you don't, you don't just, you shouldn't just think it's going to happen. It should happen. It's you, you've got to create that. You've got to bring it. Everything that we've went through again, makes you appreciate coming out on the other side. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we laugh at like, there's probably not a fight we could have today. That could be worse than anything that we went through for the, you know, the first 10 years of our marriage. And so I I think we laugh sometimes and we're like, you know, who's doing the laundry is not what's taking us, you know, down. It's just, it just seems so immaterial that we're fighting about that. Do we have bad moments that someone's in a bad mood or we're, you know, but, but generally speaking, we've been through so much more that we don't sweat the small stuff. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and would love to know what resonated with you. You can find us on Instagram at love.intently to continue the conversation. And also, if you could leave us a rating or review, it would mean the world to me. It really helps other people find us. And again, I couldn't recommend Parm's book more, Perfect Pain. You can find the link in our show notes. And shout out to West Bank, a dear friend from the Entrepreneurship Podcast who connected us. I love you all. Thank you for listening today. Until next time, with love and intention.